Welcome back to part two with attorney Matthew Cohen. Everything about IEPs, 504, and everything special ed. Nothing's off limits here. So um, let's start out. Let's talk a little bit about transitioning. I know we brought a little bit about therapeutic schools up earlier, but how, as a parent, for me, <clears throat> excuse me, I knew that my kid was not succeeding in, in, in public education. So he needed more hands-on, one-on-one, and it was, a rough, it was a rough go to get it because I didn't even know what I was talking about at the time. I knew therapeutic schools existed, but I wasn't sure how to bridge that gap. So how do you get there? And when do we call someone like you? <laughs> yeah, how do parents know when they've just been turned down on everything else or earlier? I mean, to me, the earlier the better. Get your documentation. And Well, I think you've both answered the question. Uh, earlier is better, but earlier also has both cost and and schools don't like it when lawyers show up. So you have mm -hmm. to be kind of careful about finding the moment where you're getting a, a brick wall. You can't, you've tried to work out the problem. You've talked to the teaching staff. You've talked to the principal. You've talked to the special ed coordinator. Maybe you might have even gone up to the superintendent's office and talked to them. Whatever, you've made some effort. And it's, I think, very important for people to make that sort of effort. I, I discourage people from having legal fights if there's a different way for them to work out the problem. It's much better. Even when we're involved, we encourage people to go back and talk to the staff, the administration, sometimes even the board, uh, to try to work things out. So it really, um, I, I would say that there's a, a point of where it becomes essential and an earlier point where it's more of an option. The essential point is you know your kid's hurting, you've made an effort to make it better, and you're hitting a brick wall. And the school is saying no. The school is maybe even worse doing stuff that you feel is hurting your kid. They're refusing to give them what you want. They're maybe proposing things that you think will be even worse, like putting them in a bad class or a bad school somewhere to get rid of them. Uh, so those circumstances, whether it, and, and I want to say there's a group of people out there who are called advocates who are mm -hmm. not lawyers. Mm -hmm. There aren't enough lawyers doing this kind of work. So there are certainly times when you need a lawyer, but there are often times when you're just beginning to deal with the school where it may be sufficient to have an advocate helping you. And you can find advocates through some of the social service agencies and disability rights That's groups. a very good point. We um, hadn't talked about that. We have advocates on our staff. There are people who are private advocates who work on their own who charge, but they can be very helpful. And, and then the beauty in our office is we have staff advocates <coughs> And imagine a cutout of me standing behind them, you know, so I'm not going to the meeting, but, but they know that I'm present even though I'm not there. This is kind of the best of both worlds. But one of the things that schools may respond defensively even to having an advocate, but sometimes they're less defensive with an advocate than they would be with a lawyer. On the other hand, I would say sometimes when it's a complicated situation and the complication could be that your kid is clearly having problems and you see that they're probably going to need the more extreme intervention. Or alternatively, you see that the school's reacting as though they're having big problems and you don't want the extreme intervention. Right. So it can be either direction. Getting us involved earlier can often help to avoid whatever that bad thing is mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. seems to be on the horizon. From my perspective, I tell people at times, you, you have a choice. We can be involved. And, and, and sometimes, and this, this is one of the painful realities, is that lawyers are expensive and many families can't afford to hire them. And there are some very good lawyers in the public agencies like Legal Aid and Equip for Equality, but their caseloads don't really allow them to be highly involved at early stages with people. We sometimes work in, in what's effectively a coaching role We're mm. behind the scenes. Uh, we tell the parents, don't even tell them that you've got a lawyer. Mm -hmm. I was just going to ask you that. Absolutely. Keep it quiet. We want you to try to work things out, and mm -hmm. it may provoke the school if they know that you've got a lawyer. Yes. What can we do to help you to strategize to work out the problem, to build relationships, to uh, forge better connections without 
it getting too antagonistic. And one thing you can be almost certain of is that if the parent brings a lawyer, the school will bring a lawyer. On the other hand, I should also say that if the school brings a lawyer, you better find a lawyer. Oh. That, that's the signal so, you were asking so about. So how often there does it happen the school brings a lawyer first? More than you'd think. Really? Yeah. More than you'd think. Because, because let's say they want, they say, this kid's, we got to get him out of here. Got to get him out of here. And the parents are saying, no, they'll bring their lawyer right. in. Or they may perceive that the parent's a problem and mm -hmm. the parent's been overly critical and they need to control the parent. Uh, we even have parents, uh, it's, it's not that uncommon anymore that the school gets a no trespassing order against the parents. Wow. Really? Just to go to meetings or to go oh, visit their gosh. kid at school. Oh. Yeah, so. Better call a lawyer, because if they're not even letting you on school grounds, yeah. you've got a problem. Wow. That happens often? Often's too strong a word. I mean, that is really it scary. It, it yeah, happens regularly. Really... I, I wouldn't say often. You know, It's mm -hmm. probably a very small percentage of the families where yeah, that but... happens. But you would think it should never happen or almost yeah, never happen. Yeah, you think it should never happen. Yeah. Right. It happens. Well, we, we get calls like that multiple times a year. Let's say, uh, for those who are listening who don't understand how an IEP meeting is set up, yeah. who is who is in the room and who can I as a parent or caregiver bring with? Great, because it can be very, very it can be very overwhelming Absolutely. to walk into a room by yourself. So I'm glad you asked that, and, and I'll make a comment. To Aside from a lawyer. Well, <laughs> Until and, you and, need a lawyer. And even without a lawyer, yeah. my advice is never go to an IEP meeting alone, ever. Okay. Ever, ever, ever. You should bring a friend. You should bring a spouse. You should bring a relative. You should bring a, a, a church person, you know, whatever, whoever it is, uh, for two reasons. Mm -hmm. Number one, there's this group of people, some of them you know, some of them you may not even know. They're talking about your kid. They're talking in jargon. They're dissecting your kid's performance. They're moving fast. They have an agenda they're trying to cover. They're looking at their clock because they have Another you know, meeting. five other kids, mm -hmm. you know, waiting in the hallway to get to. And this is your kid. Right. And by God, you know, you want to make sure that they're treating your kid properly. And so two reasons. Number one, it's scary. It's very scary. And having it's a, like a your friendly chance, face. And it's your chance. You're it's sitting your, there. Yeah. I need these I need these needs met. And and even if all that other person is providing is moral support just by physically uh -huh, right. being there, just, that's a help. But the second thing I always tell parents, don't just have them there to lean on and hold their hand. Have them take notes. I was just going to ask you, can and this, you record it? You can record it with the permission of the team. Okay. You, in Illinois, Illinois has a, a state rule that says that uh, you can't record. Mm -hmm. It's regarded as eavesdropping or wiretapping to record right. if, if one person has given permission, but not both. So you need to have mutual. So you have permission. to check so you have your to state. Ask, you have to check oh, your state laws. Right. You have to check your law, and that does very heavily. Many states have a more progressive law about that, and as long as one person consents, you can record. And then is this a, this meeting, it's maybe a good idea to have an advocate if they, you know, even well, though I don't know if they would uh, know to I, even ask. I'm, I'm, I'm going to say maybe because... No, I don't think parents would know. Well, but I, I have families who come to me when their kid is three years old and they say, I've heard that this is a complicated, messy <laughs> thing, and, you know... Nice to meet you. I want a lifelong relationship with you. <laughs> and, you know, I generally discourage that, but I'm a private lawyer and I, right. you know, do what I do for money. If they want to have a lifelong relationship, hooray. <laughs> uh, but, but that's Keep unusual. Keep you on the payroll. <laughs> but, and, and we have staff who go and, and it is overwhelming. So it's actually not even crazy to think about that. Mm -hmm. Because I, the terminology alone. Terminology, the relationships, the body language, there are all sorts of things that go on. But... Fundamentally, and this is like dealing with a doctor, the most important thing of all is your relationship with the school staff. Mm -hmm. Most important thing of all. And if there's any way for you to make that work, it's important to do that. And there are times when the relationship deteriorates so much that it's not fixable. There are times when the school is taking advantage of the parent and they need, in effect, protection or help because they're being taken advantage of. But if you lawyer up too fast, you may be sending a signal inadvertently. Yeah, a threat, kind of. That, yeah, yeah that, that's taken as an assault, mm -hmm. even though you're just motivated because you're confused or you're nervous or whatever. 
And so it's a very individual decision and you have to be very careful about it. But uh, uh, when you hit the brick wall, then certainly. But prior to the brick wall, that's a real judgment call. And I'm not, uh, as much as I'm happy to get people's business, I'm not a believer that you bring lawyers in quickly just because or because you don't trust the system or whatever. I, I agree that 100% on that. When my son was struggling, what I would do each year was introduce myself to the teachers. Um, you know, And would you tell them this is I, the situation? Well, I would tell them. I'm sure they knew about mm-hmm. my son. My son's, for you, um, diagnosed with bipolar, yeah. bipolar 1. Um, so I wanted them to know who I was, what I looked like, what, it, and I tried to make us feel like a team, like we are going to work together. Because I found that... If you come in guns blazing, they're they're not as apt to help you. So right. you want to build that relationship and to show that you're a parent Absolutely. that's trying on your end. You know, I, I you think you try and you try and you try more. And in fact, not only is that important from a relationship standpoint, but if parents are perceived as scamming the system or being overly hostile or suspicious. That's going to reflect badly if you have to bring a legal case. Yes. Because the law, sadly, the the judges have a double standard, and they really are harsher on judging the behavior. They they assume that the schools are acting in good faith, Mm -hmm. and often that's not true. They don't assume that the parents are acting in good faith. So you kind of need to lean over backwards to, to make things okay. But two technical points I want to mention about that. Sometimes schools say... Well, you can't bring somebody unless you told us about it in advance, even when it's a lawyer. Is that true? It's not true. Yeah, oh. I've heard that true. I've heard that It's not true. It's not yeah. true. You have a right to bring, the, the legal standard is you have a right to bring anybody who has knowledge or expertise about the child, and you get to decide what knowledge and expertise is, not the school. You don't have to, have, uh, to give them advance notice. Having said that, our policy is always give advance notice. At least with us, we don't want to show up and have the school be surprised. If we show up and surprise them, they're just going to cancel the meeting. Mm -hmm. There's no point to that. And it just sets a tone. It sets a tone. And and maybe there's another point you were asking about the IEP process. The law in Illinois has changed, not nationally. Okay. Different states vary with this. But now the law in Illinois is that the schools are required to provide drafts of everything at least three days in advance. Well, that's a huge positive change. Wow. Mm-hmm. So drafts uh, of what you'll talk about, what the, what the, outline, talk about, of the, the outline of the meeting. The outline of the meeting, proposed goals, all of those Fantastic. things. Fantastic. IEPs are actually, from my standpoint, and sadly not all educators believe this, I think the IEP is a brilliant creation. If you stop and think about it for a minute, the idea is you, you have a discussion, you figure out, my child needs X. And they have this problem, and we'd like them in a year to make a certain amount of progress. And here's the strategy that we're going to use to have them make the progress. Here's the data that we're going to collect to see if they're making the progress. And then at different points of the year and at the end of the year, we're going to look critically and thoughtfully at that data and figure out it's working, hooray, and either we keep doing what we're doing or it's not working and we need to ramp up what we're doing. Right. Um, but we're using that as our guide. Many schools, it's just an exercise in busy work, and they're not going through that process. But the parent, now that they have the right to see this stuff in advance, my view is these meetings are often rubber stamps. Mm -hmm. That's the reality, painful reality. I'm actually happy with it being a rubber stamp if the parents and the educators have been talking beforehand mm-hmm. and they've had the dialogue, then it can be a half-hour meeting and it's a rubber stamp. Fine. Yeah. But when the parent walks into the meeting and they're surprised or there's data being used that they don't understand or acronyms being used that they don't understand, or even, worst of all, imagine you walk into a meeting and the school says, your kid has a mental illness and you had no idea. And it's a group of six or eight people who you don't even know. Yeah. yeah. How the rest of the meeting's just a blur. You don't get rest it done. Of the meeting, absolutely. It's just and a blur. you're just unprepared. But, right. But, and parents don't know. They need all the preparation they right. can. You, which um, made me have this thought about medication uh-huh. because I get a lot of that from parents. The school told me that my child needs to 
A, be on medication, or B, they need to go to the hospital and they want to call an ambulance for them? Well, let's respond to those two things differently because okay. they're different rules. The first rule, I don't know if you all had that with your kids, but <clears throat> my kids, when they were kids, they used to say, it wrong, it wrong, it wrong. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, the schools are not allowed to recommend rec uh, medication. I was, they're not I didn't allowed think so. to when require just, medication. That doesn't sound right. Um, they are not allowed to discuss medication. The, the the closest they can come is to say, "We think your child has a, a disorder that maybe needs an evaluation, and maybe it's a type of evaluation that they don't do." And interestingly. If they recommend an evaluation, they're supposed to pay for it. Uh, so that's something else that oh, they don't see, tell that's parents. Good that's, to know. that's something our listeners hopefully just heard because yeah. that's a big If they say that an evaluation is necessary for purposes of some special ed issue, it's supposed to be at the school district's expense. But, and, and they can't, the, the other piece of that is the, the parent has an absolute right, absolute right, not subject to debate or at least not through the school system, to say no to meds. They say yes to meds, and the school has to administer it. They, have, they can say no to meds. The school can't do it. The only outside regulation of that is that could theoretically become a kind of a DCFS medical neglect issue, but it's not okay. an educational issue. Okay. The school has to provide services. Let, let's say, for example, and, and this happens, got a kid with off-the-wall ADHD, and the school, by God, they want that kid medicated. And the parent says, I don't believe in meds. Mm -hmm. That's their right. Whether that's a good decision as a parent or a bad decision, that's their right. There's absolutely nothing that the school is legally entitled to do about that other than say, we think it might be good for you to get your kid evaluated. That's all they but can they say. But they cannot force they the issue. They can't force it, and they can't in any way, well, they can... If the kid beats somebody up because they had an impulsive outburst, they can discipline for that, but they can't say, your kid can't come to school because they're not taking meds, or your kid can't be on the field trip because they're not taking meds, or whatever. They have to develop non-med-based interventions to support that student. On the other hand, uh, if a kid has an overt psychiatric emergency at school, they're allowed to call the ambulance. But what defines that? Because being yeah. in my business, I feel like we have gotten a lot of phone calls like that where, and believe me, I know that things can escalate and de-escalate very quickly with children. Um, but my first response is not to take a child to the hospital. Well, first of all, in Illinois, there is a process that you're probably aware of. This I don't know if this is true in other states where there's a, a system called SAS, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. there are workers available who are supposed to come out and assess whether a kid needs to be brought to the hospital. SAS services. It's, SAS services. It's like screening. Assessment. Screening assessment. Screening assessment. Um, I don't remember what the acronym is. I can't is, either. But, it's, crisis uh, it's a crisis mental health program. Right. And, and it's yeah. to determine if there is a basis to at least take them to the hospital. So there is a layer there, though often the schools will call the police as opposed to the SAS worker. But your point is equally valid even in relation to SAS as it is, because sometimes the schools have very good reason to call, and the kid really is mm -hmm. dangerously sure. out of control. And sometimes the school's just pissed off at the kid or pissed off at the parent. <laughs> yeah, it's just a, an easy way to punish the kid or punish the parent or get them out. And and now, sadly, bring it back to the real world of the pandemic. Because schools are having trouble staffing adequately, they're calling the police more. They're calling SAS more. They're looking often to get the kid out, not because they really have such a severe crisis, but it's inconvenient for them and they don't have the staff resources to cover it. Right. Problem. And do they have their own crisis inter intervention team in schools? or Some do, some don't. Didn't you say no, Chicago do does? Or I'm, I'm unsure if they have it anymore. Uh, I know they had it yeah, years ago. They Chicago has a lot of security and very little crisis intervention. Okay. Um, because I know you and I talked briefly about school resource officers yeah. and What's your opinion on that? I know that's a very controversial subject right now. I can, I can only speak from personal experience. Um, in our department, we trained all our 
school resource officers in crisis intervention. So at least they had some working knowledge to deal with children who had mental health issues. I think that's important, and it's not universal, no. number one. And it's not a requirement not to be trained? Not on a statewide basis. It's no. not a requirement? No. Okay. Not a statewide requirement. Number two, and this may happen in Chicago, it certainly happens in some Chicago schools, and it certainly happens in suburban and downstate schools, and I would say especially in some downstate schools. The SRO, the school resource officer, is perceived as, whether they want to be or not, they're perceived as the kind of the muscle for the school administration. Yes. And so they're put in a position where, whether they want to be or not, they're being asked to be the tough guy. They're being asked to be the interrogator. They're being asked to be the one who's going to enforce a variety of issues that may not be criminal at all, or maybe they're technically criminal, but the school has other ways of dealing with them that don't require any involvement with the police or the court yes. system. It's just convenient to use the, the officer in that way. And my experience is I've dealt with some wonderful SROs who actually acted as a very good control mm -hmm. on the school's tendency to kind of over-discipline. And on the other hand, I've had some situations where the SROs were very inappropriate, mm -hmm. set up to be inappropriate, and, and took the ch challenge of being inappropriate and did so. You know, yeah. they were, they yeah. were uh, doing a lot of things that were problematic. So it, it, there's a lot of variability. And I, I guess I would say, and I'd be curious about your reaction to it, but... It's not doing people favors to criminalize behavior that's related to mental health. Oh. So I used to, when I taught, make this statement. We have a fear in this society to label children, right? We don't want to label them mentally ill. We don't want to label them bipolar, schizophrenia, any of that. But we definitely don't have a problem labeling them as a felon. Right. Absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And that's for, for young kids. Yeah. I mean, under the age of 18. No question about it. And, you know, another kind of similar statement would be, uh, if you suspend a kid more than one time, what does it tell you about the effectiveness of the suspension? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're absolutely yeah. right. <coughs> mm -hmm. Well, not, my son loved when he was suspended. Yeah, many of them yeah, do. It's attention. And it's attention. It's getting an mm -hmm. escape from the school. <laughs> It's getting escaped from the, the work. We were pulling him right out of where he yeah. didn't want to be to begin with, right. and that was defeating the purpose of what we were trying to do. I, I have a, and, and I haven't mentioned this yet, but, but I have a, a term that I advocate for, which is when kids are having behavioral problems, they have emotional problems that make them more vulnerable to having behavior, I encourage parents, so it's an appropriate thing to talk about today, to work with the school to develop something called a behavioral umbrella. That's my term. It's not a legal term. Okay. The idea of the behavioral umbrella is how do we build out a, a variety of different supports that will make it less likely for problems to happen to start with, and when problems happen, make it more likely that the problem doesn't escalate, mm -hmm. and when it escalates, make it more likely that it's quickly brought back to the norm rather than to exclusion. That's both, I think, a good idea for the kid just in yeah, terms it's a of... great plan of action. You know, dealing with difficult behavior. It also has an interesting side benefit, which is the public schools are required to faithfully implement behavior plans. Mm -hmm. And if the plan is simplistic or doesn't really do much to help, they can more easily say, well, we did what we were supposed to do. There's no issue here. If there were built-in strategies for things that they were supposed to do and the school blows through those strategies, then the school legally, this is absolutely legally, they're not supposed to expel. That's big. Yeah, that's really that's big. That's something and, else that people don't yeah. realize. And so yeah. that's why the notion of the behavioral umbrella is that you're constructing a safety net for the child it's good for them therapeutically and clinically, mm -hmm. and it's also good for them legally because it helps to protect them from exclusion. And uh, from my standpoint, oftentimes, not always, I mean, there are kids who are very hard kids, mm -hmm. <laughs> no question about it. 
But oftentimes, there's a skill deficit, there's a control deficit, there's an impulsivity, there's a lack of understanding. Uh, the child uh, may have uh, a lack of not, they don't have the cognitive ability to understand the rules. I, I had a kid who I represented in a small central Illinois town, and he had 72 days of suspension in one year. And his parents kept asking for help, and the school kept saying, he's just unmotivated, he's a bad kid, he has a drug problem. And finally, parents who, incidentally, had an intellectual disability themselves, remarkable couple, uh, took the, the lead of the school that the kid had a drug problem and took them him to, to get a drug evaluation. Thank God, the drug evaluators, this kid's never used drugs. There's no drug issue here whatsoever. Wow. Good for the parents. He's yeah. got an intellectual disability. He doesn't understand the rules. He can't follow what's happening in the classroom. So, of course, he's acting out because he doesn't, he doesn't yeah. know what's going on. And he has ADHD, and he's got an impulse control problem. Oh, so gosh. it was like all of the ingredients for not only acting out but misinterpreting the acting out yeah. were there. And no wonder the system didn't work. System yeah. didn't work. And and we were able to get him into a, a, a good program finally, and it worked out for him. But the, the point of that is that um, all of these, and, and from the standpoint of the intersection of law enforcement and mental health in school, this is not casual stuff. This is life-changing stuff. And if a kid gets busted and they start putting him into the juvenile justice system yeah, the legal and system the, marked know, they it, start know. they start picking up the history and each time there's an incident the courts are going to be more likely to do something about it and more and more and oftentimes sadly that's happening independent of any exploration of whether the kid has a disability that ought to be dealt with which compounds the issue compounds the, often causes the issue yeah. not just compounds it and and so it's almost like the two systems are operating independent of mm -hmm. one another when they ought to be operating you know in co coordination and and the goal would be that we keep them out of the court system by giving them better support in the school system i agree i mean it's it's been my personal experience with the people that I know, they have actually been advocates and allies for, you know, these children, especially yeah. children who don't have parents who are proactive in their lives. They you know, have done amazing things to get them. Despite my comments about school resource officers sometimes being misused or, or misbehaving themselves, <laughs> on the whole, my experience is law enforcement wants the schools to step up. They don't like being put in the position. No, of, I it's, wouldn't. Of, uh, it's the last thing you want for... For a kid. I right. mean, it's just a bad road. No. It's the wrong road, a bad label. And yeah. I've never held that position, thankfully, but I think for myself, it, it would be, it, it's it's a tough place to be in for sure. Yeah. Well, and uh, a tough place for the kid and a tough place for the family. Uh, you know, the other thing that's related to this that we haven't touched on, there's a lot of suicidal stuff happening mm -hmm. in schools these days. And that's heartbreaking. It's this, all of this misunderstanding oh God, and misinterpretation right. leads to this senseless... Stigma, blame, mm -hmm. uh, punishment, uh, reactive uh, conduct by the adults rather than you know, proactive intervention. And uh, kids are vulnerable. Yeah. Kids are vulnerable. Yeah, and their brain's not fully developed yet, so it's hard Bingo. for them to Absolutely. control their emotions. Absolutely. No question about it. Uh, so it's tough stuff, and uh, and as you've both alluded to, parents often they have a gut feeling there's a problem, but mm -hmm. they don't know what to do. They don't they don't know about the resources. They don't know right. what to do. They're intimidated. This is an intimidating process for them at times. Yes. And uh, right, that's why is, I asked listening you. Listening to something like this is empowering to parents. Like if you yes. you know, hopefully they're listening to part one, part two. Attorney well, Matt Cohn, because it's it's gonna. This is what it takes, you know, to I, just hear a few facts of what your rights are. You know, I want to tell a story that's a personal story. I I, I mentioned I think in the first hour I have a son who has disabilities, and 
I think he was in seventh grade. The school knew I was a special ed lawyer, so I oh, had boy. A, you know, they, I got special treatment on Treat with kid gloves. Treat with that was what I thought. <laughs> oh no! Um, and he, I think he was in seventh grade, and he was having difficulty. And the assistant special ed director was in this meeting with us, and the meeting ended, and I had to get to work. I had to go downtown, and I tell parents, basic rule: always read the IEP. Mm-hmm. You know, don't don't leave the meeting and assume it's all okay. I always read the IEP. I had to go to work, so I went downtown, got to work. I got home at midnight that night, and I'm I didn't read the IEP. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's not the that's not the it's such, it's such the usual <laughs> story. I, I, it's the usual thing. It's so, uh, oh my god, at midnight. I'm standing there in my underwear, you know, reading the IEP. God damn. They moved him to a self-contained class in another school and had not said a word about it in the meeting. Now, I I am pretty confident that the guy who was running the meeting, in effect, he did that to work me. Yeah, I was just going to say that. I wasn't going to let them get away with it. Mm -hmm. It was so flagrantly off, bad, illegal, not discussed, wrong in about 20 different ways. I had and they're idea. messing with the wrong guy. You're messing with the wrong guy. <laughs> and in fact, unlike most parents, I had the personal phone number of the special ed director, and I called him up at 12.15 after reading. Oh. I said, I'm going to be in federal court tomorrow unless you've got a correction made to this document. And, and they fixed it. But the, the lesson for me was, if they're going to screw around with a guy like me, this can happen to anybody. Yeah. Um, and shame on me for not having read the IEP, but shame on, you know, parents. I, I, I want to be very careful. This I'm not making a blanket statement about schools or educators, but this happens way more often than it should. Well, look at you. You just said, I just need to get to work. I mean, how many parents right. are sitting in a meeting? They just think, I got to get out of here. Yeah. If the meeting's over, they either have to go somewhere or they're just, their head is spinning. The last thing they do is sit probably remember to really sit down and go through it. It's you know, I'm, I'm a lifelong Democrat, but, but uh, and why is that relevant? It's relevant because Ronald Reagan said something that resonated for me. He said about the Russians, trust but verify. Mm, good point. Uh-huh. Yes. And that's, that's really important. Yeah. But it's difficult when you're in a long meeting like that because they can last for hours oh, and hours. Yeah. So your head's spinning. Absolutely. I mean, it's. And by the way, though, they can last for hours and hours. But the flip side of that is sometimes they don't last nearly long enough. Yes. And sometimes they last for hours and hours and they're still not really done. Yes. And, and you walk out saying, I wish I would have said uh, this or yeah, why didn't I ask yeah. that? And ask for a follow up meeting. Yeah. Uh, you, you, there's no rule that says an IEP meeting can only be a half hour or an hour. There's no rule right. that says it can only happen once. The law says any reasonable request not to repetitively harass people. But any reasonable request for an IEP meeting is supposed to be honored. Right. And I try to advise parents that if they're feeling extremely overwhelmed or they're not understanding some things, just ask to reschedule for another day and learn whatever it is that they're talking about so you can go back in more educated. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you, you made a comment earlier, and I thought you were going to go in one direction, and you went another. Uh-oh. You were talking about transition. Ah. Uh, so I want to talk about a different kind of transition. Okay. I want to talk about the transition that schools are required to begin to plan for when kids turn 14 and That's what I was going to oh, ask you about, okay. too. Uh, and it's, it's relevant, particularly, uh, it's relevant for all kids with disabilities. It's relevant for kids without disabilities. But the, the idea behind transition planning in special ed, of course, the, the notion behind special ed is that we're trying to promote independence. Mm-hmm. That's the underlying focus of the entire law. But the notion behind transition planning is starting at age 14 and a half, we're supposed to be thinking about what does this kid need after they graduate? Because that's, that's if you're on, on target, that's freshman year. You're a freshman in high school at 14? Roughly. Or eighth grade? Roughly. Eighth grade to freshman year. Yeah, right, okay. 14 and a half, so roughly eighth grade to mm-hmm. freshman year. That's the ball game. Yeah. That's what it's all about. Mm-hmm. Life skills. Life skills. That's the point. And uh, interestingly, I, I haven't really mentioned this, but 
in the normal IEP progression, you set goals at the beginning of the year whenever you do it, and a year later you review progress and you develop new goals. Mm -hmm. That's incremental. It's very small. You know, what are we going to do this year? The transition plan is totally different because the transition plan says starting at age 14 and a half, what do we think we want this kid to be able to do when they graduate anywhere from four to eight years from now? So it's like the difference between a one-year plan and a strategic plan. Right. Because the transition plan is looking forward much further. And then you're supposed to backfill. We think this kid can go to college. Well, what do we need to do in the next several years to get him to college? And in the, in the realm of mental health, both kids who are, the audience probably is familiar with the terms externalizers and internalizers, so both can be a focus, but... Is this kid ever going to be able to get a job if they're busy acting out and challenging authority and, right. and being oppositional everywhere they go? Mm -hmm. No, that's a life skill. Right. It's not just a mental health issue. It's a life skill. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter what the kid's intelligence is. If they can't respond to authority, they're not going to get a job or keep a job at least. On the flip side, for the internalizers, I've had a bunch of kids. Brilliant. Number one in their class. Straight A average. No social life, no social skills. They're cloistered. There's no way they're going to make it in college because they can't navigate in the world. Right. Because they have an anxiety disorder or a social you know, phobia or whatever. School says, wait, it's the valedictorian. What do you mean? I say, kid's not graduating. Right. What are you talking about? The kid's the number one in their class. They're ready to go to mm -hmm. Maybe they've even been admitted to Harvard. Parents have a little light bulb go off. My kid's not ready to go to college, whether it's Harvard or community college. They're not going to make it. Ding, 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 school district. We've got to slow this train down. Yep. Mm -hmm. and, and so the transition process, both starting at 14, but all the way up to 22, what are you doing to make sure that this kid will actually be functional? And well, can you teach life skills in that? Absolutely. That falls under? It falls under. Any, any, and it makes sense. It makes perfect and sense. And life skills, by God, that's everything. Yeah, that is everything. Do you know how to cook? Do you know how to do your laundry? Do you know how that's to That's independent. I was going to say balance a checkbook, balance but they don't a checkbook. do that anymore. Uh, take, the, take the bus. Budget. Uh, Budget's budget. a big one. Uh, sure. And, and get along with people. Yeah. And even find a doctor and get help. Make appointments. Make appointments. All of it. Simplistic it's stuff. crucial. Yeah. yeah, and that starts at, at, so a parent should start asking about when their child's 13? No. 14? They should start thinking about it when they're 13. They should start asking about it when they're 14. Okay. In theory, actually, you can begin to talk about it before 14 and a half, but the law requires the school to start dealing with it at 14 and a half. And the school's going to look at you like you're from Mars if you start talking about it. Yeah, I'm sure they yeah. will. They've got but enough on their plate. They're not even. It makes such sense, though. You know, yeah. when that works, what a program. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's light. It's <clears throat> just a chance at life for a it whole, really, It's life-changing. My mm -hmm. son had a great school that really worked hard with him to do a lot of those things. So it was life-changing. And um, it, it's not an either-or. It's not academics or job. It's not a job or life skills. It's all of the above. Great point. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, so you have, you know, we've been talking about, you know, everything under the sun so far, even though you'll have to come back because there's much more to go. Um, but you're a positive person. What can you tell the listening audience that will give hope? So, I mean, you're just a pleasure to have all of uh, this information. It's so... Thank you. Well, I, I appreciate the prompt, and we <laughs> talked about that a little bit before we started, so, so I, I, it's been on my mind. Um, Let's start at the beginning. It's hard to have a kid with a disability. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's just painful reality. It's a, it's a busting uh, of the balloon. It's a busting of the balloon. And in the world today, there are, you know, we talk about people first language and we talk about say it loud, I've got a disability, I'm proud, and various things like that. Bottom line is, it's hard to have a disability. It's hard to have a family member with a disability. And many, Disabilities obviously happen on a spectrum, and there are different levels of severity. I have a strong feeling it's not a competition. 
uh, who has the worst disability or who's most severely impacted. It doesn't matter if you've got a 120 IQ or an 80 IQ. It, what matters is how does this affect you? Mm -hmm. And that can happen whether you have a severe depression or mild depression, a severe ADHD, mild ADHD. And it can affect you depending on how the adults deal with it, both your parents and the school. So you may have what's objectively a more minor problem, and if it's not dealt with well, it becomes a big problem. Many parents feel disenfranchised. They feel shattered even because yes. they, they have the dis They weren't expecting this. They weren't expecting completely. it. Who bargained for that? Mm -hmm. uh, and then what do you do with it? And the school is daunting and overwhelming and scary, and, and sometimes they're even hostile. Um, and, and one of the discussions that we have with clients has to do with, they say, I want my kid to be caught up. Well, parent, you know, that's great, but the reality is your kid has a disability. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. It's not clear. And the fact that they don't get caught up isn't necessarily the school's fault because it may be the nature of their child's disability that they're never going to learn how to read or they're never going to read as well or they're never going to be able to do right. algebra, whatever it is. They're never going to be able to have a big circle of friends. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. But... What we try to do, and I think what parents need to do, is, is akin to some, I've been reading recently on an issue of hope in relation to terminal illness. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Different topic, but mm -hmm. actually a lot of applicability to the issue of what do you do as a parent of a child with a disability? Because there may be things you can't change, and you've got to have a realistic idea of what your child is going to be able to do and what your child isn't going to be able to do. And by the way, part of transition planning is for the kid as much as possible to figure that out. Yeah, mm -hmm. they should have be a realistic a part of it. sense of it. Mm -hmm. But the fact that you may not be able to cure your child of disability doesn't mean, and by the way, the fact that the school is an overwhelming bureaucracy and it's an uphill battle and they don't listen and they're insensitive and all of these things, the hope. What can we change? What can we do to make that child's life better? And that requires that you get as good an understanding of your child's disability as you can. Not perfect. And I'm sure both of you and many of the listeners have experienced their kids get multiple disabilities. The clinicians don't always agree. Mm -hmm. Some people are more optimistic. Some people are more pessimistic. And it ebbs and flows it and ebbs changes. And flows. This, Absolutely. this child's growing up, hormones, the no whole question. thing. No question. Which, by the way, is another element of mm -hmm. it, which is it's a lifelong mm -hmm. uh, occupation. It's not something like when you have a typically developing kid, you kiss them goodbye at 18 mm -hmm. and they're supposedly launched. Uh, but you want to learn more about what is your child's set of issues. I'm, I'm a strong believer that you will need to be realistic not have grossly crazy expectations that are just not going to be doable. But at the same time, and I think that there's research that backs up that expectation has a big impact on performance. So don't set the bar too low. Mm -hmm. Expect a lot. Expect a lot like that. in a the context point. of what you know about the child, so you're not being crazy about it. But nonetheless, expect a lot, and, and then think about what are the parts of that person's life that we can influence? Well, Where's the opportunity? Where's the opportunity? And then what we help people with, but you do it with the lawyer or not with the lawyer, here are some goals. Are these goals realistic? What are the paths that we need to pursue in order to accomplish these goals? And we, as parents, what do we need to do to empower ourselves to get there and to help our child to get there? May involve an advocate, may involve a lawyer, but and, it doesn't And always. also support groups and education all of, and all finding out, above. you know, putting yourself in, making yourself stronger. Mm -hmm. may, and, and, and the strength and resilience is important because it's a journey and it's a tough journey. Mm -hmm. It's not an easy journey. But if you shift from an all-or-nothing approach where either my child has a disability and it's terrible or my child doesn't have a disability and everything's good, to my child has a disability. i got to deal with that, but 
knowing that they have a disability, I love them, they're great, and I'm going to do everything I can possibly do to make their life as better as possible. And then hope is real because you're not chasing fantasies. You're chasing something you can actually make a difference in. Well said. Yeah, I love that's that. very well said. It's, you know what? That is really inspiring. That's that's inspiring. I hope I'll... After all you see, and, you know, in your profession, your day-to-day, that's a very inspiring outlook. I believe it. I can tell. I believe it. Yeah, I hope a lot of families hear that hear that message. It's because so important. I, I know for, for myself and probably for you, mm-hmm. it, it takes a while to get there because you have to find the right supports and get them in place. And we talk about that mm-hmm. all the time. All the time. We, we can't be an expert in everything. I can't be an expert in mental health and IEPs and... Right. Especially when you weren't expecting to have to be the expert. No you question. Just, this stuff is thrown at you, and you're just right. going along for the ride as best you can. But all the more reason, don't do it alone. Mm-hmm. No. Get help. Yes. Not just I'm not advocating lawyers. Just get help, whether it's professional help, whether it's mm-hmm. personal help, family help, uh, support groups, information. Um, one of the maybe the most important things, and we're drawing towards the close of your program, but Information is power. Mm-hmm. Empowering. Yes. It's, it's empowering and it's power. And one of the things that happens in the schools that's very hard for parents is schools control the information. Yeah. Very good point. Yeah. And so what can you do to learn about what's actually happening in those six hours? Oh, I'm going to read the records. And if they're not giving you records, I'm going to pursue them. And I'm going to observe and I'm going to talk to the teachers, and I'm going to ask for some regular meetings, and I'm going to have phone calls with them, and I'm going to maybe get some professional help to double-check mm-hmm. whether the testing that the school has done is accurate or not. Uh, and I'm going to maybe, I don't trust the Internet as the gospel, but I'm going to see if there are strategies and interventions that have not been used that maybe have some research backing them up, and very important to not just pick anything you find off the internet that's popular, but there's actually research backing it up. Schools used to say to parents, we get to decide methodology. Parents have nothing to do with methodology. The law was changed. And now the law says that the school is legally obligated to use research-based peer-reviewed methodology to the extent possible. Very important. And parents need to learn about that. Yes. As hard as it is, you need to educate yourself and become an expert in your child. Not just an expert in terms of your gut instinct, but an expert in terms of actual knowledge about how they work and what needs to be done to help them. Do you think, I know I know, we're going a little bit over, but I just have to ask this question. So instead of getting an advocate or calling a lawyer, is there somewhere you can just call and be like, is this good? Is this bad? <laughs> You know, when when you're saying those like things, a hotline. I, I mean, yeah. you kind of need a hotline. hotline. Like, I didn't necessarily need a lawyer to come in, but some of the stuff That's I didn't understand, and I just needed a resource to bounce it off of. Well, I wish it were easy. Mm-hmm. And by the way, there are lots of lousy, uninformed lawyers out there. No, that's true too. So it's not just finding someone to call, it's finding the right people to call, whether they're lawyers or clinicians or advocates or Mm -hmm. support group members or whatever. Um, I would say, going back to Ronald Reagan, not only should you trust but verify in relation to schools, but you should seek people who feel you can trust outside of school, but cross-check. Yeah, get references. Find more than one person. Mm -hmm. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. See if other people say the same thing. And that's an interesting comment to make, too, because many parents come to me, we went to five different people, they told us five different things, and now we're even more confused than we were when we started. I I will say, and I don't say this to blow my own horn, but oftentimes the lawyer or advocate isn't approaching the problem from a siloed view. Mm. We're looking at all of the data. Right. And so I often am able to help make suggestions that the OT is going to see things one way and the speech therapist is going to see things maybe a different way and the mental health professional is going to see it a third way. There may be some overlap, but not always. And, for example, 
how do you deal with a kid where the OT is saying sensory regulation disorder and the mental health professional is saying ADHD? Right. Yeah, contradiction. Not necessarily, and not even mutually exclusive, but hard to know, are they both there or mm -hmm. are the two people giving different labels to the same thing? Yeah. With very different interventions to be used to, to do. Yeah. Well, that's hard. So you got to just constantly question. And also advocate for your child. Yeah. You see them at home. You see them you at know home. The, you know the core of that kid. And if I think you're that, that's probably, since I gather we're, we're coming up to the end of the time, that, that's maybe the most important point is trust your gut. Mm -hmm. You are the person who knows your kid the best. Yeah. Well, this has really been just a, a pleasure isn't even the right word. It's just been a Good. wonderful visit with you. Me too. It has really been just a gift to the audience. Lots of good information. Yeah, we so appreciate you coming here and giving us all this insight. I learned a lot of stuff, too. I did, so, too. Great. Um, hopefully, moving forward, our families will replay this, too. <laughs> Boy, could I have used it years ago. That I could tell you. So All of us. Yeah. And you're a busy man, so thank you so much for all the time. Thank you. Happy to do it. We yeah. so appreciate it. Don't forget, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We welcome your input. To contact us or any of our guests, please email us at behindourdoor@mail.com. That's behindourdoor@mail.com. And please don't forget to like and share our podcast. Um, leave us a rating. Tell us how we're doing. We really want your feedback. It's important to us. We are so thankful that you are here and listening to us. If you or someone you know is in crisis struggling with mental illness, you can call the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255 or the NAMI Helpline at 1-800-950-6264. Until next time, please join us for another conversation behind our door. Thanks for listening.